you sure about this uh, thing where you say Holesglaw drops the music in after the podcast has already been done? Absolutely. Because, dude, dude, all this time I thought the music was, we, we were playing the music and I was getting into the music and it was all part of one podcast. You're yeah. telling me Holesglaw didn't act, it was all a ruse? Yeah, just to make you feel good. <laughs> Man. Just to make you feel comfortable. Well, here we are, ladies and gentlemen. We're back. Theology on Mission. Did I say lectureship? Yeah. Oops. That's Theology on Mission podcast with with uh, Mike Moore on my right. Uh, Dave, this is Dave Fitch, and uh, this is podcast two with you. Are you feeling a little more comfortable this yeah. week than you did last week? Yeah. You listen to yourself on a podcast, and you realize all the funny things you do. I did a lot of nervous laughter. You did? Yeah. Oh, I thought you actually did funny things that were actually funny. Oh. Good. <laughs> yeah. This is me actually laughing. That wasn't nervous laughter. <laughs> All right. Well, today's topic, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. Uh, I've hit on this from time to time, but it was kind of bugging me in the last couple of weeks, um, mainly because I've been in these kind of discussions with people, and it all has to do with this idea that churches need to go after the elites. They need to plant elites in the institutions of culture to have an impact on culture. And I want to argue, so I want to like go through this argument, which is, of course, James Davison Hunter's argument from his famous book now from 2010, To Change the World, where he's arguing, no, we can't go down low in the dregs of culture among the hurting, the lost, and, and starting churches to change culture. Actually, we need to go to the elites. Have you heard this argument before? Yeah. Do you think it's influential? Yeah, I, I feel like this is an argument that's been rehashed since the religious right. Really? Yeah. Since the, You mean since, since well, Jerry Fall? Before the religious right, but wasn't that part of the religious right? Is we're going to get Christians in places of power to influence legislation and to make change happen in this nation. Well, now that you mention it, you know, you put two plus two together equals four. Yeah, I guess that's what was going on in that whole emphasis, you know, Supreme Court justices, mm -hmm. uh, getting people in Congress, yep. getting people in upper echelons of, of big Fortune 500 companies, et cetera, et cetera. So let's start. Let's just uh, re rehash the argument uh, from To Change the World. It's actually the first essay. There's three essays, you know, in the book. The first essay is all about how evangelicals have failed to engage the world for change because they failed to understand how culture works. And, and Dave... Uh, Hunter says, you know, uh, evangelicals tend to focus on personal re renewal, national revival, get people saved, uh, change people's minds, train them in the right worldviews. And, and once, quote, this is a quote, once the hearts and minds of ordinary people are properly revived and informed, the culture will change. Yeah. And Hunter is critiquing that. Yeah. He doesn't like that. He says, you know, famously... This account is almost entire or wholly mistaken. Can you think of any Christian cultural movements based around that idea? The idea of, of um, cultivating renewal among the poor, the hurting, not the upper echelon of culture? No, uh, cultural movements that were focused on if we can revive your heart, 
in your mind then we'll be able to affect change um i i think like charles colson and uh what was the name of that and, and what was the name of that book he wrote uh yeah, oh, asking the wrong person i cannot remember but anyways he kind of championed worldview education mm -hmm. and there still is a big kind of movement out there yeah uh, do you remember this is probably past your time before your time past your time uh <laughs> This is past your time. It was during my time. <laughs> uh, That's the first time most people say this is before your time. No, I'm so old. It's past my time. Okay, go ahead. Uh, do you remember see you at the poll? Did you ever hear of, hear about see you at the poll? No. So when I was in high school, there's this national movement that was brought out of uh, a couple high schoolers who were praying around their. Uh, flagpole outside of their high school so it was this strong emphasis on coming to your knees crying out before the lord uh, like a pietistic focus on becoming a prayer warrior but once a year you would gather other prayer warriors you would pray around your flagpole and this would happen all around the nation i have never heard of this and, it, it, and the focus, at least at my school, the focus was... Was this in Michigan? Yeah, yeah this is mm -hmm. Michigan. The, the focus was to get your principal there as well. Because if you get your principal there, you could affect the, the public school. You could begin to uh, institute change in your school and make it a, a place that's more honoring of God. Wow. Well, no, I've never actually ever heard of that. I don't probably think anybody else has either, frankly. But anyways, <laughs> I, I, bet you, I bet you their website is up and running strong. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, okay. So back to Hunter's argument. Uh, Hunter uh, wants to say this view of culture is entirely wrong That and it's embraced by evangelicals. But uh, it ignores the central role that institutions play in shaping culture. Um, you know, he gives the example of like 83% of the population, this is in 2010, 83% of the population believe God is creator of heaven and earth, and yet evolution rules the scientific textbooks and the teaching of, of, of those, that subject in the public school. And he says, why is that? It's because the elites in the halls that make the decisions rule, and Christians don't, don't uh, exist there. He also wants to suggest that um, evangelicals don't get how culture is stuff we create, cultural products like movies, artwork, websites, books, you know, Uber companies, mm -hmm. you know. And, and here again, he says evangelicals produce a lot of stuff, but they, it's all popularist stuff. And so um, it's largely consumed by our own people, evangelicals. So we, we do write a lot of books, but only evangelicals read them, and it's absent from the New York Times bestseller list or the New York Review of Books or whatever. And, and so it really doesn't have any weight. Unless, in you, this unless your church, unless your church purchases a lot of your books, that can get you on the New York Times bestseller we list. We all know people who have done that. We're not <laughs> mentioning any names. No names. But, but, but what he's saying is that evangelicals are making a lot of things but it's not respected by culture at large or it's not being consumed by culture right. at large it no it's not uh, so so this is really um what do you what do you call it um 
hoi polloi, snooty ways of looking at culture. If it doesn't make the New York Times, New York Review mm-hmm. of Books, uh, if it's not at the big universities, Yale, Harvard, if it's at your little Bible college in Albion, Michigan, or wherever that place is that you... Uh, Bluffton, uh, Bluffton uh, University. Bl- yeah, then I'm sorry, it does not count. Yeah. It's not going to change the world. By the way, I find the whole idea offensive. You find it to be uh, elitist? Elite is the word. Plutocracy? Can we put this elite word in the uh, title for today's podcast? Yes. Uh, Do we change the world by going through elites? And and frankly, um, several of our good friends, I think, aim at doing church and impact the culture. This way. Do you have anybody in mind that you might want to call out? Nope. <laughs> His first name begins with a T. <laughs> nope. <laughs> His last name begins with a K. Uh, I, 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 You're I, not going to say it, are nope. you? This is for okay. you. <laughs> no one, no one goes negative on that man. He is a good man, but he buys into this hook, line, and sinker. Yeah. Well, he's also in a certain city that has a lot of attention and power influence. I'm not, I'm not okaying it, but I'm saying it's a little easier to be pulled into that world when you're doing ministry in that city. Mm. But but Hunter's a, Hunter's a little more nuanced in his view of culture, right? Because he's not just saying we need to train people to have the right worldviews. No, no. Uh, you know, he gives a, yeah, he's he's talking about the way culture is like he i think he uses the word dialectic mm-hmm. you know it goes back and forth it's influenced by events and history moves slowly he says and so there are various layers of activity but by and large i mean hunter is convinced that cultures change from the top down yeah he gives a list of of various places in history where he is trying to argue that elites are the ones Christians got in through elites and changed culture. Uh, one of the really uncomfortable ones for me, an Anabaptist, is where he claims Christians got into the Roman culture, the Emperor uh, Constantine, and through elites basically changed that culture. Now, was that a good thing or was that a bad thing? <laughs> Why is it uncomfortable for you? Well, it's because Hunter obviously thinks it's a good thing. Yeah. I think it's a bad thing. You think it's a bad thing because the church and the and the sword or the church and the state became too closely wedded together? Right. And so church aligned itself with the power of Constantine, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden things started to change. And the yep. reason why people wanted to be a Christian changed, and the reason why uh, we went to church changed. And actually it became a form of cultural, um, you know, religion in in at least in the way we typically have understood it. And so ironically what happens is uh, you have um, the fall of Rome and what Hunter later then goes on to talk about, he talks about the monastic community, saving and preserving culture. Well, that's not elites. So so (laughs) my question for you, Mike Moore, like, okay, is this a good thing or bad? It looks like as soon as the elites got in, they screwed things up. The whole country went downhill. The fall of Rome, barbarians came in, and it was the people on the margins who saved the culture. So so is Hunter making both arguments? He's saying influencing people in positions of power is good, 
And then also saying, but we also need monastic communities. No, no he's not saying that. Okay. He's actually saying, and I, and I don't have the, I'm looking for the words in front of me, but he's actually saying that the, the monks were actually elites. The monks, because they had high educational yeah. uh, abilities, tools, preser preserving yeah. culture. They I, were elites. But I, I agree with that. You, you don't agree with that? I don't agree they were elites. They actually moved to the margins of culture. Yeah. But they did have access to education, health. Well, were the, were the monks elites because they were operating under a Constantinian culture? Um, well, that's just it. I, I would argue, and of course, here's where a guy like Alan Kreider and the patient ferment of the early church becomes very important to read alongside James Davison Hunter. But I would argue that, no, uh, the monastic world were the people who opted, let's say, out of the powerful structures of the culture and there and dug in to kind of cultivate an alternative way of living that would call into question or challenge the existing power structures gotcha. of a culture. And in a way, I feel much more at home with that understanding of the way the culture changed. That's the better uh, interpretation of the way things happen. Let's just go through a few more. Um, um, so he says, the awakenings with Wesley, Edwards, Whitefield, Whitfield, he argues, were based on an alternative elite drawn from the communities of the English. Okay. How do you feel about that? What does he mean, alternative elites? That, that, that these, that these that's leaders? A good, that's a very good question. <laughs> I have no idea what he means by alternative <laughs> elites. But, but i got to tell you, I learned my history, that part of history, the holiness movements, the Great Awakenings, from Donald Dayton. And it was among the poor and the hurting right that the Wesleyans, the Nazarenes, the holiness movements, mm -hmm. the Charles Finneys, they went and actually they were the sources of abolitionist movements. They worked from the ground up. Right. Is it, wasn't D.L. Moody working with the blue collar, the poor yes. in Chicago? At least that's the way I've always heard it. Yeah. So again, uh, uh, James Davison Hunter wants to say it's through the access to the elitist halls of power that change happens. That's not the way I'm reading it, or that's not the way I've been taught to read history. I, I feel like I also heard this line of argument used maybe nine, ten years ago. Do you remember um, that book by Andy Crouch, Culture Maker, yes. Culture Making, where he would say the way that we affect culture is not by withdrawing from it, but by making more of it. And we should make the best culture there is because we have the best source of inspiration. Um, yeah, but, uh, okay, so just FYI, uh, Andy, Andy Crouch's book is referred to in James Davis and Hunter's okay. book, um, but he criticizes him for being thinking too small about the way culture okay. is made. Gotcha. But he does, Andy Crouch, in my opinion, gives an excellent description of the way culture making happens locally on the ground and how things are changed. In fact, it's an argument against Hunter mm -hmm. because he talks about many of the most significant cultural developments, including businesses started, happened small. You know, let's take the garage and the, com the Apple computer that's yeah. made in the garage. Three guys get together. They dream this up. They go against... Uh, conventional wisdom and boom we have a company that changes the world apple computer so there's another argument right. again one more 
And then I want to ask you, are you convinced? Are you going to go with Day James Davis and Hunter on this? Or are you going to go with Anabaptist? I got a feeling. I know where you're going to go. But uh, the civil rights movement, it didn't start in the halls of power, but with small group organizations in the South. Groups like Clarence Jordan, Koinonia Farms, the SNCC um, groups, which were student nonviolent coordinating committee groups led by Christians in the South. If you read Charles Marsh, who's also from the University of Virginia, his book, Beloved Community, he has a marvelous, like, detailed history of how these small communities upset the the uh, the the frames of racism in Jim Crow society in an amazing way, and that led to the disruptions, which later. Uh, were then organized by Martin Luther King and later became the civil rights movement and later became the cause of civil rights legislation. Right. So here again is another argument. So if you're kind of like a student of of revolutions and ideology like me, James David Davison Hunter doesn't make sense. We got to start, and this this all gets down to um, what I think the future, what what the church needs to be in in this time, in this place, in this culture, if we're going to um, work for the kingdom of God to be renewed in North America and allow God to work, we need to work in small places, uh, small churches, one right after another, planting them left and right, planting little, uh, what did Clarence Jordan call them? Oh, shoot, can't remember. Um, uh, uh, demonstration Cornelia plots. Koinonia Farms? Yeah, Koinonia Farms was the name of his yeah. his farm and his church, but he called them demonstration plots yeah. for the kingdom that disrupted culture at large. So, you know, in summary, in summary, I just want to say, uh, I think we're tempted by the James, uh, James Davidson Hunter temptation to think that the way we are going to change the world is go after the elites, the educated, the 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 top uh, dogs, and and place them in places of power, and that's the way Jesus is going to change the world. <clears throat> I want to suggest read Don Dayton, Evangelical Heritage. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, read Alan Kreider, uh, um, Patient Ferment, Patient the Ferment Church. of the Early Church. Read Charles Marsh, Beloved Community. Um, I'm writing a book called Seeding the Revolution. How many, how many books are you writing? I think every podcast, we're just going to have a plug for one of your new books. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Seeding the Revolution is actually still in dream stage, although I have all the notes from teaching um, a class on church planting. But I just want to urge all the pastors out there, you who are small church pastors, you are who are church planters, you are doing the patient fermenting work of being in local places, ministering to the poor, the hurting, those who are in in uh, being victimized by oppression and justice. Those of you who are doing that work, that's where the revolution shall begin. That's where change shall come. That's where God will disrupt the culture. Okay, so question. If, if I'm a local pastor... I'm on the ground, I'm in a neighborhood, I'm in a town, a suburb. Does this mean I don't, or I shouldn't interact with my mayor? I shouldn't talk to my alderman? If the principal of the high school comes to me, should I be reticent to working with them? 
yeah, should we despise all elites and just keep them from coming to church <laughs> on <laughs> Sunday morning? No, no, no. I, that's that's obviously not what we want to do. Uh, but it does, like, uh, I think it speaks to what we as pastors have to do in terms of our attention. Like, like I think um, of some pastors that I know that they focus on ministering um, um, among groups of people in neighborhoods and they get discouraged. I'm only affecting individuals for mm -hmm. Christ. Um, and then I also know pastors and I'm thinking of specific ones who have spent years cultivating leaders to be in say hospitals, hospital systems that are corrupt or leaders in educational systems that are secularized or leaders in business corporations where capitalism and profit motive reigns, reigns so supreme that just sending them in as an individual leader, um, really all that does is they get absorbed into the system and nothing ever changes. And so on both sides, both ends, we end up um, getting discouraged. And so uh, I've got I've got, uh, if I can find it right here, I mean, I've got like some things that I think, this comes from a paper of a student of mine. I'm not going to say his name because I haven't got permission. <laughs> but here's some things that he tried to develop among people as they go to work. And he tried to get collectivities, people to collect themselves in various places and workplaces to discern what's going on and have an impact in their businesses or cultural institutions. So he, he first wanted them to have a sober understanding of the principalities and powers at work and, and be able to discern when things are really broken and even turned evil. He, he said, rather than sending individuals, I want fellowships to develop in cultural institutions um, and perhaps they have to resist or even leave the cultural institution. He said, I want them to use their worldly gifts for kingdom purposes outside of their paid jobs. So look for places where you can influence your business, your educational institution, your healthcare institution outside of your you know, outside of what you get paid to do. And use the positions God gave you to help other Christians get jobs of influence alongside you. Now, there's just some, there's just a few ways you can start helping people think, how can I impact the place, the institution that I live in? But it's not a singular elite okay. going into a place. It's actually groups of people okay. fermenting in, in various locations. Then, <clears throat> let's say... Uh, my town mayor comes to me and says, hey, uh, we're doing um, a fall festival. We'd love for your church to have a booth there at the fall festival. Um, I mean, okay, so here's where I would say that's all good. Okay. Um, because it opens up space for relationship. But God wants to do something in that space. And so, like, when we, say, have a zoning committee member sitting on the zoning committee and, he, and, a, and say, the village hall president says, we don't want that restaurant in this town because of those kind of people, meaning a certain mm -hmm. people of color are going to come into our town. Okay, let's not just say, hey, I rebuke you, you expletive blankety <laughs> blank okay no let's say can i have a cup of coffee with you 
can I introduce you to someone, a person of color? Okay. Maybe you can I and open up space for God to work in, not only, uh, you know, in that man and his what's going on in his mind, but in that space of the village hall. So you, so you're saying you almost need to get him outside of the elitist structures in order to engage him? Yeah. Um, on the very lowest levels, that's where God's going to work to percolate and disrupt that, that town hall meeting that has come under the spell of racism and or capitalism or profit or what's going to make me look good or mm-hmm. who knows what other sources of ideological power are at work in that town hall meeting. Are there ever any times when you think you can just, you should just say, nope, we're not going to work with you? Absolutely. And I think it was in... Um, one of my books, I can't remember, but I talk about, and I can't tell you who this person is either because I haven't asked his permission, but <laughs> this is a, a, a well-known uh, obstetrician uh, crisis pregnancy specialist. And what he found was uh, that in this particular hospital, large hospital system, several hospitals, 25 hospitals in a major metropolitan area, they f- they found that they charged ten thousand dollars for a crisis pregnancy, uh, and they charged twenty five hundred for a normal pregnancy. And mm-hmm. what they found out was, of course, every normal pregnancy has the potential to be a crisis pregnancy. So they charged ten thousand dollars. The insurance company made all these excuses, right. and pretty soon they priced out these kind of um, you know good health care mm-hmm. for the average person seeking uh, good birth care. And so what he did is he tried to he he tried to show the statistics he tried to undermine it but no way and, and so he actually bought a home outside the hospital turned it into a birth center yeah. and charged twenty five hundred dollars he was an expert himself mm-hmm. he could hire nurses and uh, did charged it for twenty five hundred dollars and of course it was booked up immediately yeah. And the hospital said, hey, hey, what are you doing? And, and he goes, well, I, I told you. I, and they said, can we buy you out? And he goes, no. And, <laughs> and, and he disrupted the system. Sometimes yeah, yeah. we have to do that kind of work uh, to disrupt uh, the unjust systems that we are in, we right. find ourselves in. Yeah. So there, there's all sorts of strategies here that I think we pastors need to think through. And um, I don't know. We need to write a book or something about it. But yeah, well, 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 I think it also needs to be pretty nuanced because in my experience, when you are doing ministry in the city, you you rub shoulders with a lot more people of power and influence. So um, mm. I feel, well, when I was doing ministry at the university, I knew the president, I knew the vice president, I, I knew people in power. So a lot of people would try to get to me so they could leverage really the relationship that I had with somebody in power or the other church plant that we were doing in the neighborhood. We knew the alderman, the alderman would, um, yeah. Uh, ask if you could come to the, come to the service and maybe say something to people at our really? church. Yeah. But, but, but that's, that's very different than if you're working in a agrarian suburban rural context. And if you're doing ministry there yeah. where, where, you, where you don't have as many principalities and powers as many dynamics rubbing up against each other so i feel like you have to always start with the context that you're in to know how to yes. faithfully do ministry with the people in your church and also with the people in your neighborhood or in your community at large yes and and we're a people that are governed by some basic core practices of who we are and, and in other words we're driven for reconciliation 
we're driven by presence. We're driven by gospel. Mm-hmm. That Jesus is Lord and he's working towards renewal, reconciliation of all things. And so a lot of the work that has to be done is not by exercising power in an office on the penthouse suite, but it's in those spaces where we are calling people into righteousness and gospel on a a person-to-person or a a small group level. Right. And we see that. We see that in the gospels with Jesus, the way that Jesus approached people, the way he talked to them. Who he associated himself with. So How maybe he, maybe we can get somebody, uh, maybe we can get one of my students uh, on the podcast to talk about how, and he's a, the person I'm thinking of is a pastor of a large church on the East Coast, and he's gone through a lot of these issues in his local church, and maybe we can, uh, yeah. you know, give some help out there. Pick his brain. Yeah. All right. Well, I think uh, that was a pretty good second podcast. I think uh, I'm seeing signs that we're getting into a rhythm. We still signs of life. We Ooh. still haven't done the uh, what are you reading? And I don't want to do it, frankly, because I don't think we're ready for it. You know, it, it takes a certain amount of practice. It takes a certain amount of reading. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we're not going to do Fitch. What was what, what did Fitch on Fitch? Fitch versus Fitch or something. Uh, maybe we will. Maybe we won't. Maybe you need to give Holesclaw a call and have him come on and do yeah, Fitch. Yeah, for, yeah, yeah. Special or, guest. Or, or maybe we can just do Holesclaw versus Fitch or something. <laughs> but, but, but but before we even get Holesclaw, we're trying to line up some other people to bring on. So yeah, look forward to having some guests on soon and very soon. Yeah. So uh, podcast number two, over and out. Looking forward. Uh, I'm going to be gone for a week and a half. So mm-hmm. we're, pro- we're probably going to try to keep this going every other week. Yep. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing you every week or every other week's folks out there until then it's uh theology on mission podcast over and out dave fitch mike moore so long next time